Okay, guys, good evening. Can I uh, have you open your Bibles, if you can find it, to 3 John? Give you a little hint, it's right between 2 John and Jude. By God's grace, tonight we will start and finish John's third and, third and final epistle. 3 John is actually the shortest New Testament epistle in the original Greek. It's more like a postcard, really, than a letter. Uh, and it focuses on the battle for truth in the local church, a common theme that uh, John presents. Uh, in his second epistle, John's heart was to admonish uh, a local house church, and by extension all churches, to keep loving one another by keeping God's commandments. He warned that many deceivers had gone out into the world, spreading heresy concerning the doctrine of Jesus Christ. We read in 1 John 2.19, these people actually started in the church, um, called themselves Christians, maybe actually believed that, but they didn't hold to the doctrine of Christ that was the biblical doctrine. They said that Jesus didn't have a physical body, Gnosticism. Uh, they had all kinds of other uh, ideas about uh, Jesus Christ floating around back then. And so uh, some of these... Um, false teachers they had become, because they didn't teach the truth, left the local church, started their own churches, infiltrated other churches and corrupted them. And so John is really warning this house church uh, that he has heard about uh, to be careful. And he's, of course, talking to all the churches through this one church and gives uh, all of them, all of us, a strict warning. In Second John 10 and 11, he said, if anyone comes to you. And remember, Second John was written to this, uh, this uh, elect lady, as he called her, uh, who had opened her home to a church. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the true doctrine of Christ, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And I believe what John has in mind is, don't invite a person like this into your church. Not that you can't open your door to a Jehovah's Witness and invite them in for coffee and talk to them about the Lord. I've done that many times. Um, but you don't open the doors of your church to uh, a false teacher because there's new believers. There's very young Christians, and uh, they could be swayed. So, you know, obviously John is thinking about the health of the entire uh, body there. And so, in second, and so in second John, again, John's emphasis was on keeping evil people and false doctrine out of the church. In his third epistle, John, you know, continues in this line of th thought because he, he really brings it forth in all of his uh, epistles, all three of them. And so uh, his third epistle, though, John continues in this line of thought, but then expands his comments to include false brethren who had infiltrated into the churches. He mentions one man by name here in this epistle, uh, Diotrephes, whom he implies was a false shepherd that had risen up, drawn disciples away after himself, and had started a church, and uh, then began to lead the church like a dictator, refusing to accept the apostle John or anyone uh, from John's group into his church. Imagine banning the apostle John from your fellowship. Uh, that's not a good sign, right? That should be a red flag to a few people. But, um, 
you know, not only that, he, he started railing against John's authority, his apostleship. Uh, John was the overseer over uh, the churches of Asia Minor. They were actually in a circuit. So John was kind of a circuit preacher. He would ride, and when he was older, they would carry him. They would take him, and he would visit the churches on a regular basis, and he would exhort them. In fact, there's a one story when John was just near death, um, you know, and, uh, and he couldn't even really walk. And so he would sit in a chair, and the young guys would pick the chair up and bring him to the front of the church, and, you know, like a hush would fall over the church because a lot of people had never actually seen the great apostle John, let alone hear what he had to say, right? And so they were like, the apostle John's John, you know, and, and they wanted to hear what he had to say. And, and he would say, little children, love one another. And then they'd pick him up and carry him off. That was it. Yeah, <laughs> to man a few words. You know, and that was enough. Work on that. You know, love one another. That, that covers everything. <laughs> Why get real wordy when you could just, you know, in a few words, say the whole thing. So, uh, but this guy, uh, Diotrephes, uh, you know, started a church, became a real dictator, uh, you know, railed against John's authority, uh, uh, began to throw out of his church anyone who dared oppose his, you know, dictatorial, tyrannical reign. Um, and this is something that John had to deal with. And not only John, but the, all the other apostles as well. It was really a fulfillment of something Paul, the apostle, had said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. You don't have to turn to it really, but in verses 29 to 31, Paul said, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will, will come in among you, not sparing the flock, false teachers. Uh, verse 30, also from among yourself, so in your own churches. Uh, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. That broke As John says, I have no greater joy than when my children walk in truth. Paul could speak for all of them when he would say, you know, my heart never breaks as much as to know that there are false teachers, wolves, that will come in and try to destroy God's flock, mis mislead them and carry them off into their false doctrine and so on. And so, guys, we could say that Second John... In 2 John, he deals with these false teachers generically. In 3 John, he deals with them specifically by name. One pastor said it well. He said, there are times when we must speak the truth generally and let the Holy Spirit, uh, let the Holy Spirit make application specifically. But there are also times when, like John, we must speak the truth to people individually and personally. Sometimes we have to confront. Sometimes we have to confront, you know. And as a pastor, you know, I don't believe in confronting people by name from the pulpit. But I think that sometimes we need to confront people face-to-face, -face, okay? So John addressed this epistle to a man named Gaius. He uh, brings up two other men by name in this epistle, uh, again, Diotrephes and Demetrius. And after the opening greeting, 3 John breaks down this way. First of all, the commendation of Gaius' hospitality, verses 5 through 8. Next, the con condemnation of Diotrephes' behavior, verses 9 and 10. Third, the consistency of Demetrius' testimony, verses 11 to 12. And then the conclusion and closing benediction in verses 13 and 14. So let's begin. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. 
As we said last time, that's how John opened 2 John. And when he referred to himself as the elder, the Greek is presbyteros. It's the word we get our word presbyter or elder from. And some believe John is simply referring to himself as the, you know, in the office of an elder. It's, he was officially an elder in the church. And so they believe that he's just addressing himself by his official title, elder. Some say, well, no, he's really designating uh, his advanced age. He was elderly, all right? And uh, they say, you know, what John's kind of saying is, uh, hey, uh, John, <laughs> the old guy, remember me? Uh, I got a couple things I want to tell you, that, that kind of thing, all right? Uh, take your pick. They might both be right. I don't know. Uh, but he addresses this epistle to the beloved Gaius. Now, guys, we're not sure who this Gaius, Gaius was since there are several men named Gaius in the New Testament. If you remember in Acts chapter 19, specifically verse 29, there was, an, there was a Gaius who accompanied Paul and was with Paul in Ephesus when the uh, silversmith, another character named Demetrius, uh, different guy, but uh, he was a silversmith and made a lot of money and those in his trade making these little uh, statues of Diana, which was the goddess of, uh, of fertility, but she was the pa uh, patron goddess of the Ephesians. And they had a gigantic temple uh, built for her. It was like one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was phenomenal. But because Paul had hit town and was preaching the gospel, so many people were getting saved, they stopped buying the idols. And so this guy whips up the whole town into this big frenzy. You can read about it in Acts 19. But in the course of this brouhaha that they all gathered in the amphitheater there in, in uh, Ephesus, and uh, Gaius is mentioned as one of those that they brought into the amphitheater, and uh, he uh, is mentioned that he is from Macedonia, so he's called Gaius of Macedonia. Now, there was another Gaius of Derby. He's mentioned in chapter 20, verse 4 of the book of Acts. And then there's a third one, a third Gaius, who lived in Corinth. Uh, he was the one Paul greeted when he wrote the letter to the Romans from Corinth. And he, you know, mentions that, you know, Gaius is high and some of the other folks. Um, and when Paul wrote... His letter to the Corinthians, he said, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you but Crispus and Gaius. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14. This Gaius lived next to the synagogue, we're told, and uh, so on. But uh, you know what? We have no reason to believe that this Gaius is any one of those three guys. Now, who is he? We don't know. Early tradition in the church said that this particular Gaius was sent by John to oversee uh, to be an overseer over the church of Pergamos, which was one of the churches in this circuit in Asia Minor. The seven letters uh, to seven churches, those were all churches in Asia Minor. We'll study that. We get to, uh, to uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Pergamos was one of those churches, and so tradition says that John appointed, because John was the, the overseer over all the region, he appointed uh, uh, this Gaius to be a pastor of this church of Pergamos, Pergamus was not too far from Ephesus, where John actually ministered. That was his home church. Uh, he might have been um, uh, retired, basically, at this point, and just went around just speaking just briefly uh, to the churches, but not pastoring anymore, uh, per se. Now, guys, again, I, we're not sure who this Gaius really is, but we do know one thing for sure. John really loved him. We read that from verse 1, whom I love in truth. Greek, uh, scholar, Greek scholar Kenneth Weiss said, and I quote, John calls him beloved four times in this brief letter. Uh, here, and then in verses 2, 5, and verse 11, 
The adjective describes this man as being well-beloved by his fellow saints, an outstanding member of the local church to which he belonged. The word beloved as agapetas is the Greek word. We get our word agape, or that's the Greek word agape. It's divine love is the idea, we says. All right, verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, I have heard those in the Word of Faith movement use this as their, or one of their scriptural bases for teaching that it's God's will for all of His children to be prosperous and in good health. And this is one of the texts, I think one of the primary texts I've heard them use to say, well, look, right here in the Bible, it teaches that God wants His kids to be prosperous, financially prosperous, and in good health. The... Uh, it's important to understand that this isn't a doctrinal pronouncement. In other words, this is not God saying that he has ordained or commanded that we as his children be financially prosperous and always in good health. This is not a doctrinal pronouncement. It's a New Testament salutation. A salutation was simply a greeting or introduction that preceded the body of a letter. The Greek word for prosper literally means to have a good journey. It's like saying, I hope things go well for you. One author says, and I quote, Both verbs for prosper and be in health belonged to the everyday language of letter writing at that time. This phrase was so common that sometimes it was condensed into only initials. And everyone knew that what the writer uh, meant just from the initials, end quote. Such a common greeting. So, you know, everyone, when they wrote a letter, this was kind of like the go-to default salutation. It wasn't a doctrinal pronouncement, okay? It was simply a common greeting or introduction before the body of a letter. Uh, when John says to Gaius, I pray that you may prosper in all things, and be in health just as your soul prospers, it would be kind of like us saying to somebody, I hope you're being as blessed outwardly as you are inwardly through your relationship with Jesus kind of a thing. All right, that's the idea. Again, not a, not a doctrinal proclamation, but a simple New Testament salutation. L let me just say this. If it was John's way of making it a doctrinal pronouncement, that it was doctrine, that God wanted all of his kids healthy, wealthy, that idea, that doctrine would have been corroborated in other parts of the New Testament, right? Now, they go back to the Old Testament. We're not under the Old Testament economy. God promised the Jewish people physical, tangible blessings for their obedience. That was the, the covenant he made with Moses. In the New Covenant, what does Paul say in Ephesians 2? That he has given to us all things in heavenly places in Christ. We have great wealth up front because of our relationship with Jesus. We own everything. Uh, we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, right? It's just that, you know, they want to make this about physical health and physical prosperity. But show me other places where that is clearly said. Uh, Paul, you know, talks about the love of money being a great evil, source of all kinds of evil, you know. Those people that maintain that, Godliness is a way to get rich. Paul says they're out to lunch. Don't even have fellowship with them. Break away. That's, that's wrong, right? 
Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23. He said, Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Timothy had some kind of a stomach problem. Of course, the water back then was not purified, really. It uh, had bacteria and little organisms in it oftentimes and played with people's uh, digestive systems and stomachs and all. And so the wine was, uh, you know, diluted with water, killed the bacteria, and drink that, Paul is telling Timothy. But Paul didn't say, Timothy, where's your faith, son? Come on, didn't I teach you this? God wants you healthy. What are you sick for? You just take a little medicine, okay? Um, with regard to being wealthy, I don't have to get into all this tonight, but Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, but... Instead, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Paul said, you know, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. All right, verse 3. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. So, you know, I, I think what John is partly saying is, you know, periodically people come up to pray to receive Christ. And I'm, I'm always blessed and, and all, but I don't get excited. What do you mean? Well, I want to see a little fruit first. Then I'll get excited, okay? I mean, I've, I've seen too many people pray a prayer and walk out of here and, and, and you know, nothing has changed, okay? Um, but I think what John is saying is, uh, I, I rejoice greatly, brethren, when the brethren came and, and bore witness of what's going on there in your fellowship and testified of the truth that is in you. You have proven yourselves to be genuine, born again, redeemed Christians, people of God, okay, I rejoice in that. Just as you walk in truth. Well, there was the evidence. They were walking in truth. It wasn't verbal. James says, you know, don't just be a hearer of the word, deceiving yourself, be a doer of the word. That's one of the fruit of the being saved, a lifestyle change, right? And so John says, I'm just so excited. I got word from one of the people in your fellowship, and, uh, and wow, uh, you know, they're walking in truth, the, the brethren there, uh, proving to me that they know the Lord. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, here's the guy that was the son of thunder, right? God, can we call, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven and burn these guys up because they won't let us into their village? All right? And now he's like, my little children, I love you. Look. Some of that is due to old age. We mellow. But I'll tell you what, though. This is a spirit-filled man, okay? He was a tough, rugged, kind of rough-around-the-edges fisherman all of his life. He gets saved, and it didn't, you know, didn't, he didn't change completely right away. But as time went on, you know, he got softer and softer and wound up being called the apostle of love. My little children love one another, you know? Just a sweet guy, all right? Um, but, but John was an apostle, yes, but he was also a, a pastor who's a shepherd, a shepherd. And all true pastors rejoice when those under our ministries walk in God's truth. What does that mean exactly? It means they are living what they are learning and claiming to believe. The whole point of learning is living. That's, again, what James says. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that the whole point of your Christianity is learning. 
come to church and you hear the word. That's great and that's important, but if you don't apply it, it's worthless. You're deceiving yourself, right? So John says, I am so excited because I got word that your church is walking in the truth and I have no greater joy than to see my children, spiritual children, walking in the truth. Uh, I'll tell you what really saddens a pastor. Is when, is when uh, what saddens me as a pastor is that when I hear that Christians, some of them who attend my church, are not walking in God's truth. What do I mean? Well, none of us are perfect, so don't misunderstand me. But I make the assumption, like a lot of pastors do, when people come to church and they hear the word and they're nodding in agreement as you're teaching, that it's getting through. And they're listening because they want to live this. That's just the assumption I make, okay? And then you, and you think that they're real solid and they're really, you know, walking with the Lord. And then, you know, maybe you see them on Facebook. And I'm not on Facebook, but people, you know, show me Facebook posts, you know. And, uh, you know, here they are with their boyfriend or girlfriend. And they're out somewhere spending a weekend together. And they're on Facebook. They're, they plastered it all over social media like they're proud of it. And there's not, no shame. And I'm like, wow, that, that, that takes the, it's like a punch in the solar plexus for a pastor. It just takes the air out of you. It's like, wow. You know, I heard a pastor say one time, and I agree with him. He said, you know, for me as a pastor, I get so much joy. He's really repeating what John said. I get so much joy from the people in my church, their walks. When they're walking with the Lord, I just, that charges me up. That energizes me. And I agree with that. Me too, you know. Um, Today, we're living at a time when there seems to be this, this kind of a strange dichotomy. People come to church, they hear the Word, they, they apparently love the Word, they, they want to be in church, they don't have to be, but they're in church, they got their Bibles, and we're studying together, and then they go out and they don't really put too much of it into practice. Now, what really is troubling is when a pastor who you think is walking with God, of course, he's a pastor, maybe his church is pretty big, well-known, and then some scandal breaks, and you realize this man was not who you thought he was. Even this week, another, uh, he wasn't really a pastor, but he was a mentor to a pastor that used to pastor in the area here of a very large church, and uh, it's come out that a woman accused him of uh, inappropriate touching years ago, and the church never did anything about it. And they swept it under the rug. And uh, th- that's troubling. I told you guys about a pastor years ago. It was in the 90s. And this guy was a young guy. And his church was just exploding. I mean, I forgot how long he'd been. It wasn't that long he'd been a minister, but his church out in California was exploding. All right? In fact, it was ex- exploding so much they just bought, I forgot, how many acres to build a whole campus a church and a school and conference center. I mean, the whole nine yards, right? He's on the radio. He spoke at Calvary Chapels out there. I've got him on tape. And then a picture surfaced of him at a party somewhere in a hot tub with two women. One was his wife, and the other was a friend of of theirs. Both of the women were topless. And I thought... You know, it's one thing, and I'm not justifying it. It's one thing 
to have an, a clandestine affair somewhere in a motel somewhere because you're ashamed to, you know, but you, you're having this affair. That's bad enough. But to be out in the open at a public gathering and your, your wife is one of these women topless with these people walking around, I'm like, you know, I, I, nothing should surprise me after 40 years of ministry, but sometimes I am taken back. It's just amazing, okay? Look, I think that much of the problem, now forget the pastors for a minute, let's go back to just uh, common, uh, just regular folks in the church. Common, you're, none of you are common. We are all special people, Peterson. All right. Um, special, special people. Um, but um, I think that much of the problem in local churches today and why so many people attending church today aren't living like Christians is because, are you ready? They probably aren't Christians. They probably aren't Christians. Why does the church have so many unbelievers in it today? Those who think they're Christian, those who claim to be Christians. Why is the church, does the church have so many unbelieving? It's like, it's like Paul said to Titus. They profess to know God, but by the way they live, they deny him. The fruit's not there. I'm not going to lay all the blame at the doorstep of the seeker-friendly church uh, movement, but I have to believe that's a big part of it because they really, they really drop the standards to get people in the doors. The goal was the church becomes the world of where evangelism takes place, the field, okay? The church is the field where evangelism takes place. Instead of the, this is the place where the saints get recharged and fed and, and, and so on, then they go out into the world, the field, and they evangelize and minister out there, right? And so the seeker-friendly approach to ministry, I think, has flooded the church with many, many professing Christians who have never been confronted with the true gospel. What is that? Well, I will just tell you how Jesus described those who, uh, who they had to be, before, to be his followers, that they would pick up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him. Uh, to me, that is what the gospel is all about. And I'm not talking about works that save us. I'm just saying, though, that if a, when you present the true gospel, we, we just did a five-part series on the gospel, the key to, the key to salvation where we broke down the various parts of the gospel. And to give you just an idea of what the Bible says about the gospel. And, you know, Jesus said some things that were pretty alarming. He, he talked about, look, if you want to be one of my disciples, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow after me. The one who said, I have not come to, you know, do my will but the will of him who sent me. I do always those things that please the Father and so on, Right? But a lot of these churches, and it's not just the seeker-friendly churches, it's also the Word of Faith churches, who promise people all these material things, which brings them in the door. If you will just come to our church, we will teach you how to be successful and prosperous and 
have all your diseases healed because we know what the Bible teaches. And, you know, we're one of the only churches that really understands the principles behind this. Come to our church. We'll teach you all you need to know. You'll walk in victory. You will be completely healthy. You'll have the most successful business in town and so on and so forth. That draws people in. As Paul said in the last days, Timothy, last days, people would not want to come to church to hear sound doctrine. They would want to come to have their ears tickled, to be told what they want to hear. Who doesn't want to hear you can be completely healthy and wealthy? So these kind of folks, these teachings have drawn into the church many unbelievers who think they're Christian. And they've watered down the witness of the true. You, you pack the church with so many terrors, you're going to choke out the fruitfulness of the wheat eventually. That brings us to the first point, the commendation of Gaius hospitality. Verse 5, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, they didn't want anything from the unbelievers. We don't need unbelievers to support the work of God. God is able to support his own work, okay? And so Paul says, I'm, I, I love the way, Gaius, you opened your home. You showed hospitality to men of God who were serving the Lord, you invited them in and so on uh, because you wanted to uh, do whatever you could to help them in their work for the Lord. In John's second epistle, as we just talked about, he warned a woman who had a group of Christians meeting, meeting in her home for church. In other words, there was a, it was a house church. A woman he referred to, to as the elect lady. Uh, he, he warned her not to open her home, the doors of her church, to any prophet or preacher that didn't hold to the doctrine of Christ that the apostles had taught. Remember, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Well, Christology was at the top of the list. A correct teaching of, of Christ, the doctrine of Christ, well, that's how we get saved, right? That's what Satan attacks, the doctrine of Christ so you know vehemently. Because he knows if he can get you to believe in a false Christ, no matter how hard you believe in this false Christ, you're not going to heaven. And so this, John, in his second epistle, had charged this woman not to open her home to any prophet, so-called, or preacher, who didn't hold to the doctrine of Christ the apostles had taught. Here in this third epistle, he is commending Gaius for opening his home and showing hospitality to traveling preachers and prophets. Only those who demonstrated they were sent by God because of what they taught about Jesus, they taught the truth, and how they conducted their ministries. Now, in his second epistle, John is talking about phony apostles, prophets, evangelists, and preachers. I just lump them all into the category of prophets, those who claim to speak on behalf of God, okay? But John is focusing primarily on these phony uh, prophets, and John said that the house churches should be on guard against these deceivers keep them out of your churches right the question is how could the local churches always be sure who the phonies were how could they know the true from the false well often they didn't know often they didn't know and many 
well-meaning Christians who wanted to be hospitable opened their homes to these deceivers unknowingly and had been taken advantage of by these crooks. It was a real problem for the early church because the Christian church was so loving, so giving, so willing to show hospitality, it just bred. Uh, it, just, it just was a, like a dog whistle to these people that they would target these good-hearted Christians to take advantage of them. And so the apostles came up with a document. It was called the Didache, which is the Greek word, it means the teachings, the teachings. Um, one author writes concerning the Didache. He said the Didache was one of the earliest, uh, is one of the earliest Christian writings after the New Testament and gives several guidelines for discerning true from false prophets. This was just some basic guidelines that they wrote down, distributed among the churches, guidelines they could use to determine if, if somebody was a true prophet or a false prophet, okay? I'll just give you three of them, all right? First, they said a true prophet will be known from a false prophet in that a true prophet will only stay at someone's house a short time, one day or at the most two days if need be. But if he stays three days or more, he's a false prophet. And the idea was went something like this. Um, if a guy's really serving the Lord as a prophet, he's going to want to be about the Lord's business, right? He's going to want to be about the, the Lord's work, not sitting around your house for weeks on end, sponging up all the freebies you throw his way. That was the basic logic, all right? Um, secondly, if a prophet, uh, apparently speaking, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thus says the Lord, you know, that kind of a thing, uh, if he says, give me money or give me something else, he's a false prophet. Unless he's asking for money for others in need. Paul did that. He went to the various churches and took up a collection for the, the, the poor saints in Jerusalem who were going through a famine and so on. Okay, um, That was okay. Uh, again, the idea being that a true prophet doesn't make money an issue and never asks for money or anything else for himself. He simply trusts God and is content with whatever he has offered by the people he ministers to, whatever he's offered for the work of his ministry. That's all. Whatever the church wanted to give him, that's, that's good, whatever it is. If it's a lot, I'll have a little extra, I'll keep it for next time when things get a little tight. If it's not enough, I just trust God to provide what I'm lacking, okay? And number three, a true prophet's lifestyle will correspond to the righteous standards he teaches. A false prophet very likely will teach one thing and practice another. And the author says, A true minister of the gospel will demonstrate what Paul wrote when he said in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, uh, but as, of sincerity uh, as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So, even back in the first century, of course, there were hucksters, okay? And as Paul called them, they were Christ merchants, uh, is the idea. They were peddlers of the gospel. In other words, they, 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 they peddled the gospel for their own gain, all right? And so once the church identified um, somebody as a false prophet, the word spread, they circulated the, the word, and um, 
among the churches in the area, and that man was kept out of the churches from that time on. Now, again, there were true prophets, of course, men that God had ordained, had anointed to be prophets. Agabus was one mentioned by name in the New Testament book of Acts. We see Agabus, who was a prophet. There were others. Barnabas actually was uh, considered a, uh, a, a prophet, a secondary apostle, actually. Uh, there were the primary, the 12, uh, but then you had secondary apostles. And that's why uh, Jesus commended the church of Ephesus in, in, uh, in Revelation 2. He said, you know, you test those who claim to be apostles and have found them to be liars and you throw them out of the church. Well, they knew the, the 12. I mean, there was no way you have to test one of the 12. They knew who the 12 were. These were like secondary apostles. An apostle was somebody who uh, often received direct revelation from God because the New Testament was being written, all right? So they would receive direct revelation from God oftentimes, and they would move about in an itinerant way, go visiting churches and teaching this new doctrine that God had given them, all right? The prophets remained local. They were the forerunners of the pastors because when a, when a, 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 a Paul would go into an area, preach the gospel, once the people got saved, the church would start, they were all brand new. So they would typically pick the oldest ones in the group to be the elders, because they were the oldest, while they waited for God to teach and raise up somebody to be the pastor. In the meantime, the apostles were getting revelation from God and sharing it with the churches. The prophets were staying local and interpreting that uh, the revelation, you know, like Bible studies, they would teach the, the word of God, but they would stay local. That's kind of the background of this. And uh, these true prophets are the ones that John really had in mind in his third epistle, the ones he's commending Gaius for welcoming into his home, you know, giving them food, giving them a place to rest uh, before sending them on their way to continue their ministry for the Lord, usually including with them as, as they went off to continue the work, a letter of recommendation. Hey, I know this guy. I can vouch for his character. He's a, he's a true uh, uh, prophet of God. And then they would carry these letters, and then would be churches would be more inclined to open their doors to people that, oh, Gaius, I know him. He's a good guy. He vouches for this guy. I, I do the same thing. So a lot of people over the years that want to come to our church and speak or, or perform uh, you know, worship. Uh, if I know a pastor that's had them or this person at their church and they can vouch for him, okay. I'm much more inclined to have them come out, uh, okay, than to, to guess if they're going to be a good guy or not, all right? Um, but Gaius not only opened his home to itinerant preachers and teachers of the gospel, he also opened his heart and, listen, his wallet, so to speak, okay, uh, and gave them financial help as well. Guys, the phrase, you send them forward on their journey in verse 6, literally means you assist them on their journey. So Gaius was kind of helping to fund their ministries, that he knew these guys were good, solid men of God. Look, let me just say this. We can't all be missionaries physically, serving the Lord in Africa or some other remote place in the world. But listen, we can partner with the missionaries through prayer and through our financial giving. This is what John meant when he said in verse 8, we therefore ought to receive such, such men, such good servants of God, that we may become, listen, fellow workers with them for the truth, is the idea. Seems to be John repeating something that Jesus had told him and the other disciples 
uh, in, during Jesus' ministry. Uh, Matthew, in fact, why don't you turn to Matthew 10 real quick. John seems to have in his mind something the Lord Jesus said. In Matthew 10, starting with verse 41, Jesus said, He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man, now this will be a righteous man, woman, serving God, of course. Whoever receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. These are people that you're uh, helping with food, money, clothes, place to stay for a day or two. Um, those who are serving God, you can't physically do what they're doing. They're missionaries. They're whatever, planting churches, preaching. You can't physically do what they're doing, but you can certainly help them in the work that they're doing for the Lord. And Jesus said, if you help a prophet uh, in the name of a prophet, in other words, serving me, I'll give you a prophet's reward. Uh, righteous man, a righteous man's reward. Verse 42, whoever gives one of these little ones, was he talking about a little child or just a, a young disciple? Probably young disciple. Whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. You know, think about that. Think about that, all right? We can't all be missionaries, but the missionaries couldn't do what they're doing without us either. I mean, God, you know, remember David? And some of, it took some of his guys to, 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 to conquer, or to, I should say, to defeat the Amalekites who came and wrecked their city and took their wives and kids and all the wealth. And David got his guys together where they had just come from a long campaign of warfare. They were tired, but they, my wife and kids, they've been taken captive. No way are we going to sit around and... and get some rest. So they all took off and they got so far and they saw the Amalekites camped out. And, but, but, you know, in the distance and some of the guys said, we just can't go anymore. So David says, okay, you guys stay here and guard the stuff and we'll go ahead and beat, beat up the Amalekites and get our, you know, seize the, the spoil. Now, when they did that and they came back, the guys who were, uh, had taken the spoil, had defeated the Amalekites physically, didn't want to share with the guys who had stayed back uh, watching the stuff. And David said, no, no, no. He laid down a principle, I think, a great principle for missions, okay? He who goes and takes, he who stays back and guards the stuff will share equally with him who goes and takes the spoil. Let me translate in our situation. Anyone who stays back and, you know, God has given us a lot of stuff, a lot of resources, and if we use it to help people go out there and fight the battles and win souls in the mission field, we will share equally with those who actually go physically and win the battle, win the souls for the Lord, right? All right, so that was Gaius, commendation of Gaius hospitality. These next ones will go quick. Number two, the condemnation of Diotrephes' behavior, verse 9. John said, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them. Let me stop, okay? Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them. The word preeminence means to be first in importance. 
a word that is perfectly acceptable when used with regard to the Lord Jesus, Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, Jesus Christ. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in, in, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He is the most important person in the whole church. It wouldn't exist without him. Okay? So he has the preeminence. He is the most important of all of us. And we would all say amen to that, right? When applied to Jesus, perfectly acceptable, perfectly fine. When it's applied, when this word is applied to a man or a woman, it becomes sinful. It's an expression of pride, an expression of pride. Um, we would use it with regard to someone who loves to be listened. The focus who loves to be the center of attention in the limelight, a person who loves and seeks to be first in the sense of getting ahead of everyone else, no matter what it takes. In short, a person who has a lot of pride. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, Diotrephes was motivated by pride. Instead of giving the preeminence to Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.18, he claimed it for himself. He had the final say-so about everything in the church, and his decisions were determined by one thing. What will this do for diatrophies? He was most unlike John the Baptist who said, He, Jesus Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. The Greek verb indicates that it was the constant attitude of diatrophies to promote himself. End quote. This is something constantly did. He was always promoting himself, putting himself first. Diotrephes in the role of a pastor, I would name him Pastor Disaster, okay? <laughs> but Diotrephes in the role of a pastor ran the church like a dictatorship, a dictatorship, putting himself first, demanding his own way, and throwing anyone out of the church that dared to oppose him in any way. He apparently didn't know, probably knew it, but didn't care, what Jesus had taught his disciples in Matthew chapters 18 and 20. Turn to Matthew 18. I mean, you know these, but let me just read them to you real quick. Matthew 18. I'll read to you verse 1 and verse 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of of heaven. Now you can read the whole passage, verse 4. Jesus said, Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles themselves like a little child. That's somebody who builds themselves up, constantly putting them above everybody else. Matthew 20, verses 25 to But Jesus called them, his disciples, to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great, who are great, exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, great in the kingdom of God, great in the eyes of God, um, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, it was a sad day when the church um, 
classified servanthood into a, it is a calling, but into a uh, career. Uh, the minister, diakonos, the Greek word means servant, became the, capital T, minister, capital T, capital M, right? When that happened, and it didn't happen immediately, but it has happened definitely in the last 20 years or so, the minister became the celebrity of the church. Instead of the servant of all, he became the one who expected to be served. And that's a great travesty and a great tragedy. So unlike who Jesus was, who washed the disciples' feet, the lowliest task of a servant was to wash their feet. The feet were considered the dirtiest part of the body. Why? Because they were the, that was the thing that came in contact with the world. And yet Jesus girded himself because they were all arguing that night about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. He had already taught them this lesson, but apparently he had to demonstrate it now. And so he, you know, girds himself with a towel, takes some pitcher, pours water into a basin, stoops down, and begins to wash the disciples' dirty feet before they would eat the Passover. I would imagine that you had 12 of the most red-faced guys in the whole world at that time. Because here is their king washing their feet. He said, you see what I've done? If you're going to be great in the kingdom, you can't lord it over people. You have to be the servant of all. And you have to be willing to do the most menial of tasks. That's how God judges greatness. The unbelievers, the, the world, how many people do you have under you? God's kingdom, greatness is measured by how many people have you got over you? It's a fight for the bottom. Humility. It's an important reminder to all pastors, we aren't celebrities. We are servants. One pastor of a giant megachurch out in Florida fell several years ago. And when he was talking to another pastor friend that he knew, who asked him what happened, the pastor said, I guess I let my celebrity go to my head. The other pastor said, who told you you were a celebrity? God never told you that. Verse 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loved, loved to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Again, I mentioned this earlier. Diotrephes' pride was so great that he wouldn't even let the apostle John or any of associates into his church. One author put it this way, he said, we can just hear him say, who is John? I'm a better leader than him. My ministry is just as good, if not better than his. Why should all these big shot apostles get all the attention and honor? And on and on it would go, right? Sounds very much like the sin of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in Numbers 16. Can read about that. How they came to Moses one day and they wanted to offer incense to God. They said, "Hey, look, we're co we're uh, Levites. We've got just as much right as your brother. You're 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 too much into the nepotism there, Moses. We have just as much right as Aaron does and his sons to offer incense to God. You remember the story before the, before it was all over. They were gone, and God had vindicated uh, Aaron as his priest and his sons." 
I'm going to let you read the story, okay? Look, God appoints. When we lay hands on some man to be a pastor here, we always make sure we tell people we are not appointing a pastor. We are recognizing the anointing that God has placed upon this man. We don't appoint pastors. That's a God-given thing. Jesus gave to his church some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and teachers. Jesus did that. My job is to recognize those that he has called and gifted. And we just keep an eye on people. And you know what? If they're a shepherd, they're going to act like a shepherd. And eventually we realize this person, they have a shepherd's heart. They're a man of character. They have a heart for people and so on. And eventually we recognize that in front of all of you, and you agree with us. Verse 10. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, this dotrophies, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Diotrephes not only failed to receive John and any believers that associated with John, who were loyal to John, uh, he wouldn't even let them into his church. But he went on, as John says, pratting against us with malicious words. The word pratting in the Greek means incessantly blathering. Just keep running off the mouth incessantly, you know? Malicious words. The Greek is literally evil talk. Gossip. Evil talk, though. Malicious. Poneros. There were pornography from that Greek word, okay? Uh, vicious. Um, just malicious things, okay? Putting them out of the church. Diotrephes not only used his influence to forbid others in his church from showing hospitality to John or his associates. He even went as far so far as to excommunicate those in this church who tried to show them hospitality. This is always a red flag when it comes to a church. Is the pastor a humble man of God that is still teachable no matter how many years he's in the ministry? Or is he a dictator? Now, a strong leader is one thing. There are people that have accused me of being a dictator simply because I want to be the leader God's called me to be. I, you know, there have been people over the years who when they wanted to do something and I just didn't feel God wanted us to do it, they looked at me and said, well, you're a pope. You're a dictator. I said, look, I can't run this church based on your convictions. I have to run it based on my convictions. And I just don't feel God wants us to do what you're saying. You feel that's from God? Start your own church. Okay. But one thing God taught me and Cindy, because she's a leader over the women, almost immediately, it was amazing. We no sooner became officially a Calvary Chapel than we had five families move in like the same week. And they were our crash course in being strong leaders. Because God chooses people that have good hearts, not that we're perfect, of course, but good hearts who love him and want to serve him. And now he's got to toughen them up to be strong leaders. Because you can't have people walking all over you and, you know, doing what they want, and you're just kind of standing on the sideline being humble and letting them run the church. It doesn't work like that. So there's strong leadership. That's good. 
But then there's dictators, and that's bad, okay? This Diotrephes was such a dictator in uh, his leadership that he needed to be publicly rebuked. Publicly, John said he was going to do it when he came in person uh, to that area to visit that area, right? Um, John said he was going to publicly rebuke this guy. You know, his was a public sin, and public sins need to be dealt with in public. But listen, there are those Christians that have a soft, sentimental view of God's love who believe that, you know, publicly rebuking somebody, especially by name, okay, um, who is involved in a public sin, is unloving and therefore unchristian. God love them. I've run into these people many times over the years, you know. The handful of times we've had to disfellowship somebody from the church because they just wouldn't repent of sin. Invariably, people came to us and said, you know, was that really loving? I mean, was that, how, how was that like Jesus to throw them out of the church? Well, first of all, I didn't physically throw anybody out of the church. Secondly, if they would have repented, they could have stayed in the church. But Paul said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. No offense. All right? And, and the idea is, look, if we allow sin to remain in the church and don't deal with it through church discipline, it will spread and metastasize, and the whole church is going to be corrupted. Because I love the sheep, I can't let one infect and bring down the whole flock if they won't repent. I mean, maybe these folks, God love them, they, but they have a very sentimental, mushy view of God's love. Maybe they should reread Matthew 23, where Jesus publicly rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees eight times for their hypocrisy and sin. Here's what Paul said, Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. There are people that have been in the church who are causing doc divisions and offenses. And they just wouldn't stop. What are we supposed to do? Eventually we said, you know what? You're unhappy here. It's obvious. You don't, you're, not, you're, you're not happy here. The church, for whatever reason, you feel it's all wrong and messed up. It's best if you just find yourself another church. The, you're not a blessing here. We're not blessing you. So go to a church that you're going to be a blessing in and that you will be a blessing to you. I, I don't wish him any har uh, ill will. You're not happy here. Go find a church that you agree with and be a blessing there. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verses 14 and 15? He, he mentions this guy by, by name, okay? Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. So Paul didn't have a problem rebuking somebody by name. You know, the, the, the sad thing about it is too many Christians want to be kind and loving to rebels in the church. Or even the wolves when they should be more loving and protective of God's true sheep. 
One pastor said, instead of preaching the truth, these men spread their own religious propaganda using deceit and clever speeches. We have the same problem today, and Christians must be aware of false teachers. They come to your front door with magazines, books, and tapes trying to convince you that they are teaching the truth. Paul gives two instructions with regard to these people. Mark them, identify who they are, and avoid them, end quote. Number three, he mentions the consistency of Demetrius's testimony. Verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Jesus said that just as a tree is known by its fruit, the same is true of a person who claims to be a Christian. You will know them, if they're real or not, by their fruit. And you can start with the fruit of the Spirit and work your way out from there, right? John made this claim also in his first epistle. Uh, I'll just read these to you, 1 John 2, 29. If you, know that he, uh, if you know that he is righteous, Jesus is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. That's the fruit. Who practices righteousness. A lifestyle, okay? Not perfect, but that is the general pattern of their life. 1 John 3, 7 and 9. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he, Jesus, is righteous. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Well, the Greek is, does not live habitually in sin. For his, God's seed remains in him, and he cannot live habitually in sin because he has been born of God. All right? All right, verse 12. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true. Hey, you know we're true. John says, you know me, I'm an apostle. And I'm telling you, Demetrius, he's a good guy. He is a solid man of God. That's a quite an endorsement, okay? In contrast to Diotrephes, who was this evil witness, John says Demetrius was a faithful and good witness. Demetrius, along with Gaius, were godly Christian men. Word of God, we had more of them in the church today. I'm convinced they would greatly impact young men who have grown up without a father by being an example. And that's what Paul says, or John, I'm sorry. It's what John said, that he praises them for their witness to the body of Christ and encouraged the church to follow their example. Paul said, Follow me, Paul wasn't into celebrity pastors, follow me as I follow the Lord. You don't follow anybody who's not following the Lord. After that pastor, it all came out, the hot tub thing. Of course, the church was, you know, pretty much was a nuclear bomb that blew the church apart. But I saw interviews uh, with some of the people that went to the church. And, well, he's my pastor, I'm going to stick with him. He's my pastor, I'm going to stay... Look, I don't know what his trip was. I don't know what his issues were. And I hope he's gotten them straightened out. I, I hope he really received Christ. Because I'm not even sure, looking back, the guy even knew the Lord. How do you know the Lord and do that? Okay? It's one thing to have a moment of weakness. It's another thing to put on display your sin as if you're proud of it. I just know this. You don't follow the man. You follow the man if he follows the Lord Jesus Christ. If he's not then let him go his own way. What are you showing loyalty to somebody who has just dragged Jesus' name through the mud? 
Where are your loyalties at as a man or woman of God? All right, finally, the conclusion and closing benediction, verse 13. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Now, this is interesting, and we're done, but this is interesting a little close here, okay? Um, commentators point this out, too. It's the only place where John or any of the other apostles call other Christians friends. Uh, that's not because there weren't friends in the church, okay? But why does God say, why does John, I should say, word it like this? Our friends, those Christians who are with us, greet you. Greet the friends at your church by name. It's interesting that John chose to call his family in Christ friends. I believe he did that because John wanted to highlight the truth that Christians should be friends as well as family. Remember he said that in his first epistle? If we say we love God and hate the brethren, we're not really Christians. There are people that grow up in these some of these churches. I'm not going to mention names, but some of these denominational churches especially, they're like, it's like a cultural thing. They're like, you know, eighth generation. You know, they, they came over on the Mayflower, and, and you know, and, and the families did. And they've been in this church for, you know, a couple thousand years or whatever. It's really ridiculous, you know. And so it's a cultural thing now. And, and you know, and, and here they are in the church, and God forbid you should ever sit in their pew. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll rip you out of your... It's so fa- but the look... I, years ago, I took a few classes at a Christian college in the area. Cindy will vouch for this. Everything I say is true, by the way, but she'll vouch for this. <laughs> And um, they had like a banquet for donors and things. And because I was a pastor and student, they invited me to come, Cindy and I. So we sat at this round table with, I don't know, we were it's like maybe uh, 10 people, five couples, okay? Christians who all supported this Christian college, okay? They were the most unfriendly people I have ever met. I'm not kidding you. You try to strike up a conversation, they wouldn't look at you. They say something, dismiss you real quick. It's like they were too good to even talk to you. You talk about the frozen chosen. Um, you know, one thing I love about this church, <laughs> um, we're too poor and stupid to be haughty. You know, we're, we're too poor and stupid to be we are, We're not great intellectuals, and your pastor leads the list. So I'm not, you know... We're not great intellectuals with all kinds of letters after our name, right? We're just simple folks, blue-collar people for the most part. And you know what? We're family in Christ, but we're friends. I enjoy hanging out with you more than some of my real family. God bless them. Uh, And I love them. But But there are some believers who are not... If they're saved, I'm not saying they're not, but... For some reason, they're just not very warm, not very friendly. And I think John wanted to communicate, little children love one another. Well, how how about you start by being friends, okay? Friends like each other. Uh, You know, uh, 
Philadelphia, uh, the, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love, friendship love, phileo, friendship love in the Greek, you know? I mean, we have agape love because that was given to us when we got saved, Romans 5.5. 5. The Holy Spirit moved in and poured that into our hearts, right? We love each other in Christ. Now the, the, the trick is to like each other. Uh, okay, you know, I, mean, I think this church meets that, but I'm just saying, you know, I, I want our church to be warm. And when God challenges us by bringing people into the church, hopefully he will, that are completely different than us. They got purple hair or orange hair or, or body piercings all over their face or something, and they walk in because, you know, we're all pretty much alike, right? Right now. The real test of our love is going to be if God begins to bring people into our church that were radically different than us, are we going to get out of our comfort zone? Are we going to... You know, when God started bringing the hippies into the churches back in the 60s, a lot of these... Uh, people stopped going to the church. Others said, unless you look like us, you can't come here. You've got to cut your hair and, and change your clothes and put on a suit. And when you do that, uh, cut your hair and, 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 and dress up, you can come back. They never did. And the thing, the dynamic about Calvary Chapel, this little church, little country church on the edge of town, right? The song? Long hair, short hair, suit and tie. You know, people with suits wear, sitting next to a, a, a young guy or gal with tie-dyed T-shirt, ripped jeans, sandals. See, that was the love of God. It's easy to love those who are like us. It's a lot harder to love those who are we wouldn't, people we wouldn't probably hang around with if we weren't saved. It's a lot harder to love people that are different from us. This is what God wants. This is his love. So next week... When a person walks in with an orange hair, I want you guys all to go up there, give them a big hug, and say, we've been waiting for you. We've been praying for you to come. Blow their mind. All right? All right, next week, God willing, book of Jude. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. We thank you, Lord, that you have worked in us, and we are a family in Christ. But now, Lord, we pray that you would work in us that we would be humble. We would put the needs of others in our family in Christ before our own. That we would be friends with each other. I mean, people that enjoy spending time with each other. And Lord, should the day come when you begin to bring in radically different looking people, we pray, Lord, you'll give us so much love for them, they will be overwhelmed. Blown away. Because this is the place, of all the places on the face of the earth, the church is the place where there should be no divisions, no prejudice. We should be one family, and we should be friends. Give us grace, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.